Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 122 of Yoga Land. On today's episode, I speak to Kelly DiNardo and Amy Pierce Hayden, who have just put out a book called Living the Sutras, A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat. This book is going to be one of my new favorites. It's not a transliteration or a scholarly interpretation of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, but it is an incredibly relevant, accessible entry point to the sutras, and they provide a lot of active reflections, journaling exercises, and commentaries that you can apply to your day-to-day life. So I had a great time talking to them and understanding each of their unique backgrounds and what they brought to this exercise, which I think is very deep study. And I have to be honest, not going to lie, I I get a little bit tired of the men in the yoga community being taken more seriously as scholars than the women. I notice this really mostly in the quote-unquote scholarly echelon. I'm not going to name any names, but it's just something that I, I feel and notice. So I'm very happy that these women wrote this book. And although it's not a scholarly book, I think it is every bit as important and critical for self-study and self-practice, and I'm happy to support them. You might recall that Jason and I talked about Jason's favorite non-asana related yoga books on episode 117. And I had Erica, who helps me out with the podcast and helps with various editorial duties. I had Erica put together a list of all of your favorite non-asana yoga books that you shared on Instagram. So you can go to that podcast page, jasonyoga.com slash episode 117 to see that whole list. And I'm sure there will be some books on there that you have not yet read because there are for me too. Okay, everyone enjoy this episode. And if you do, please do me a favor and write an iTunes review and or share it on social media. It really, really helps for more people to find the podcast. So I am so curious. I know I've obviously looked you up online in your bios, and I know that you have been doing your friends and and been doing yoga together for a while, but I'm wondering what inspired this specific project on, on the sutras. Very good question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is Kelly. It's kind of a funny story. I moved from Switzerland to Madison by way of New York and DC, which is a longer story. And I started practicing at a studio nearby and Amy was my teacher and one of my teachers. And I really loved her classes and in particular her Dharma talks because she was talking a lot more about yoga philosophy in a way that made it modern and personal and relevant. I mean, I remember one, I remember, I wish I remember which sutra you were talking about, but I remember you talking about going out to lunch and having this taco and wanting to like always recreate and go back and have that same taco experience mm-hmm. and you couldn't do it. And I thought, how is taco, how are tacos related to this ancient yoga philosophy? And through that, we became friends. We both owned studios in our other city, in other cities. And so we would talk a lot about that. And 
and we just became friends from there. And then one day I got this stack of books to consider for stories because in my other life, I'm a writer and journalist. And two of the books were exactly the same. They had different covers and one had the word yoga on it. And I flipped through it and I thought, this does not have anything to do with yoga as I know it. And I got really frustrated and self-righteous, if I'm honest. And I shoved the books in a corner and was just kind of annoyed. And a few hours later, I stomped off to yoga, which is exactly (laughs) the the mood you want to be going to yoga in. (laughs) And Amy gave another beautiful Dharma talk. And I thought, this is this is what a book about yoga should be. And I let it percolate for a little while and brought it up to Amy over coffee. And it aligned with some things that she had been thinking about. And so we went off and running with it. Yeah. Yeah, The original title of living the sutras was journaling the sutras. And that title for us made sense in the beginning because in my 15 years of training yoga teachers, one of the things I, you can ask any of my graduates, require of them is a consistent self-study as a sadhana during their training. And I give different journal prompts and different things that they can kind of consider when they're going through the Bhagavad Gita or the sutras to kind of reflect back what they're understanding and beginning to apply it to themselves so that eventually they can guide their students in a similar way. And so journaling for me for 20 years has always been a big part of my, my daily practice. I find that I'm a lot more articulate. I'm really more articulate in what's going on if I'm sitting with a good friend and answering pretty straightforwardly how I'm feeling. But if I don't have that opportunity, writing for me and free thought writing has always been really helpful. So in sometime about seven or eight years ago, I was halfway through my teacher training career, I guess, at this point, and I couldn't really find a good supplemental book for the Yoga Sutras. Mm -hmm. And as maybe you have found in your experience too. And I just found that so many were, I mean, after 15 or 20 years of study, I can pick them up and begin to have a really good understanding of how to articulate what a 2000 year old text might've meant. But I don't think that's an easy thing for early teachers or even early students to yoga. And so they're put off by it. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I started the, working on the idea not specifically only of the sutras, but a a journaling book that was specific to the kleshas, the five causes of suffering, and how we could really work around that specific to ego and identity. And I just, I I really, I'm not a writer, I'm a a great teacher. (laughs) And I've learned to be a writer. And so for me, I took some time off and tried to write the manuscript. And I I struggled and and I put that back on my shelf. And so when Kelly um, pitched this idea to me, it was like she had in a way read my mind and I was going to give her a layer of my, of what I really wanted to. So we started talking about it and the original like outline of the manuscript came to, together pretty effort, so fast, pretty effortlessly right. and really quickly. And so we started, our agent started, you know, shopping it around and we were really lucky to have not only the idea really eaten up by Shambhala, but they were excited wow. to they were really fantastic. They were so fantastic to work with. So that, that's kind of the collaboration and how it kind of later on turned into Living the Sutras was on Chambala's part, which I think was exactly the title it should have been all along. Because journaling, I think sitting on a bookshelf in Barnes & Noble might look a little bit austere and mm-hmm. like a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And wants to do a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Although it's exactly the same context. It's uh, it, what, what, it, what the journaling is doing is bringing the sutras to life. Right. I think that's what so much of us 
so many of us want to do with our uh, any yoga philosophy is we want to know how to apply it to our life, to our daily life. That's right. And I think for some people, journaling can be intimidating. Absolutely. And I think you can do the work and you can get a lot out of the book without journaling. What we want to do is actually live it in our daily lives. So I think I think the title change was, was spot on. Yeah, yeah. So Amy, can you talk about, first of all, I, I think you guys do an, just such an excellent job of, as you said, sort of taking this text and not translating it, but, but interpreting it for in a relatable, modern, relevant way. Amy, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your background and how you started to be able to do that? And, you know, as Kelly said, like, do those Dharma talks that were so that she found so, so relatable to her life? First of all, I'll say to anybody listening, I think that just comes from time. <laughs> Years. You know, I've been, I picked up my first copy of the sutras probably about 21 or 22 years ago. Uh, it was Swami Satchidananda's translation, which actually I still recommend for beginner, beginner, maybe sutra yogis, mm-hmm. uh, because his commentary has fun little stories and different ideas, many in parable teaching the lesson. And so that was the first translation I read. But I remember when I was studying, I was living in New York City. And of course, in New York City, you have access to some of the greatest lineages and teachers. So I would, I was, I had some specific teachers, but I would move around a lot and really look for teachers who were talking about the ancient history. And it always would kind of wake me up because I found if I listened to something even three or four minutes long, I was able to say, oh, that person experiences that. I do too. There's something universal going on here with the way that non-harming is for everybody. There's something universal with the way that self-study exists. There's something universal with discipline. There's something, and the main tenets of the sutras I found were non-dogmatic, were applicable to anybody. So I really started to focus on the sutras as my primary yoga study. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 10 years ago, I went to the Himalayan Institute in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, which is uh, connected to Yoga International, and started to study sutras with Panaji Rajmani and Ralph Solvik. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I took just one workshop with Panaji and was just like, whoa, I wish I could study with him more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I could just sit and listen. I mean, students of mine think I know the sutras and I think I know them fairly well, but he would could recite them in Sanskrit and say, he'd say, okay, in Sutra 34 in book two, the third syllable of this means this. And I, my mind was just expanding because of his knowledge. Yeah. So second to the sutras, I started to become really interested about 10 years ago in, in understanding Sanskrit. And so there's a woman in New York called Jo Brill. And I started to study with her a bit. And she came to my studio and would do introductory lectures on the language. And once I began to understand some of the prefixes and suffixes of the language, I began to be able to read what was happening in the sutra without translation, parts of it, parts of it. Mm -hmm. And in that study, I began to understand the essence of what each aphorism meant. Like Hmm. you could feel that it meant without pain, or it would mean with vision, or with heart, or against groove. And just starting to piece together these little themes that would continue from the first book through the fourth book of the sutras, had my attention and made me want to understand why they were coupled as they were. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, it's a very, very systematic approach. But other than studying with some great teachers, a lot of it has just been my study and my application. 
of the of the text. I think I think Kelly may have been surprised when we were writing last year. I think one day I brought like thirteen translations of the sutras <laughs> to her office. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, and I said, wait a minute, I need to consult this one, and I want to look at that one. And whereas I just counted on my bookshelf, what do you I have? have three. Three is good. Three yeah. is good. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think I must have eighteen or nineteen. You know that I have gone to over the years and. And it's also, that's something else that we say in our book, that we're not literally trans, it's not a transliteration. Right. In fact, Edwin Bryant has a fantastic transliteration, you know, for somebody who wants more scholarly approach. But I wanted to make, I did the majority of the translations. Uh, Kelly would ask me, I guess I did all the translations, but with your, with your support. And I really, that being able to translate was really important for me because if you read some of them word for word, the language is much like Latin or Spanish or Italian, where the the end result comes in the beginning. It's not the way we speak. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, the very famous sutra that starts the sutras, well, the second sutra that says "Yoga Chittavriti Narodaha," the definition of yoga. Mm-hmm. We would never speak in that order. It says "Yoga is cessation, mastery, mind." You know, like mm-hmm. we would say, "Well, when the mind is steady, that's yoga." But the way that it's ordered is yoga is the steadying or the mastery of the movement of the mind. So mm-hmm. it, just even in changing the order, sometimes the, the listener can say, Kelly would say, just say it to me in plain English. Well, yoga is when the mind is steady. Right, but right, right. We don't often, if something isn't translated that way, it's really difficult to understand the thread of one to the next, to the next, right. to the next. And what probably was being codified by a series of teachers under, under the direction of Maybe one person, you know, potentially we're not quite sure. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that was a roundabout way of answering it, but it was through my study and also my desire to have my students be able to apply it on their own in, in the moment. Because as you probably know, if we don't practice, we don't have the tool ready when we're in the, in the space of whatever it is, crisis, excitement, joy, clarity. Those things get lost when we're not practiced. So true. <laughs> It's so true. I noticed that the most in my parenting, but that's a whole other story for a whole other podcast. Okay. I want to just go back because you, you mentioned, you know, there, there are so many more scholarly transliterations and translations and interpretations. And I like that you didn't go in that direction because I do think that there is a need for what you've created. And um, it's very exciting. Like when I read it, I was actually taking tons of notes, not for the interview, but just kind of for myself. I I mentioned that I I got the book before it was released. Um, I got a PDF to prep for this interview a few months ago. So that's kind of why I was taking notes. I was taking notes on my laptop. (laughs) And yeah, and then I went back and I a few days ago to, to, to refresh my memory for the interview. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, the book's out now. Like I can actually order because this is the kind of book that you want to hold in your hands for me. And I want to actually just like be looking at the journal prompts and then doing the journaling. So this is my long roundabout way of asking this question, which is, can you describe for people kind of what this book is not and then what your overall intention is since they don't have it in front of them right now, probably? So it's, it's not an academic work. It's not a transliteration of the sutras. What it is, is a very, what we hope, what, we, what our aim was, was to make it modern accessible, personal, and relevant. So we take a sutra or a group of sutras, and we give a a brief commentary that we tried to make 
very modern in approach. So we might reference the cat in the hat. We might reference, we do reference a lot of social science and research because one of the things I was really struck by is how ahead of their time the yogis were. They're really talking about things that science has now proven, like the happiness advantage, the flow state. Yeah, you you re- you mentioned the the book Flow by author with that German yeah. name, not German Polish name that I can never pronounce correctly. Yes, I actually looked that one up so I could pronounce it. There's there's several YouTube videos that will tell you it's oh. Mihai. Sent me high. <laughs> awesome. Can you say it one more time? Me high, cheek sent me high. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll put that, a link to that in the show notes too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we wanted to use things that either science or Aesop's fables or cat in the hat or pop culture references in some way. I think this might be the only yoga book that includes a quote from Fight Club in it. So we wanted to include those things to make it really understandable and modern to to people who might be new to the sutras or who to people who are used to very academic scholarly works on the sutras. And then the second piece of it is after each commentary, we include, I think they're generally writing prompts. Some of them are exercises over a few days for readers to do if they're so inclined to really make it personal and relevant to their life. So it's great that we explain it to you, what it, what we think it means, our understanding of it, but we want you to then be able to actually practice it. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that it's not also is listening to rules yes. that yogis or sadhus of 2,000 years ago would have been practicing in a, in a world that is not the world that we're living in today. Right. Although they were humans the same way that we're human today. And one of the things that I think is difficult often about any kind of philosophy, be it Eastern philosophy or Western philosophy or what have you, is that it's coming from something that was developed over time and parts of something have been put into action or have been maintained as a truth still or a status quo. Mm-hmm. And in the work, we're hoping that you don't have to go looking for something in so far in the past or so far into a projected future that you might one day be able to pl- apply this idea to, but that in fact, right now, wherever you are in the middle of your life, there is something that already has your attention or is taking your focus or is keeping you feeling stuck or is a desire that you have that you can absolutely use right away to move, you know, into a greater purpose or to move forward with. So we want you to be able to, like, this is what's going on for me. We could all read the same journal prompt and Kelly could say, you know, that's totally like about my situation right now with my brother. Mm. Or I could say, gosh, that I, that's a, that's about me not looking at myself in the way that I need to make an apology to my son or something like there's, we could all use the same thing in the, in the immediate. We don't have to go look for suffering. We have something that we can be working with right away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is pretty amazing that these principles and suggestions, I don't know if I may, um, from the sutras, like still hold up so well to modern life. And um, I like that you'd mentioned, you know, the allowing for them to be applied like in a, in like a really alive way to modern life. I actually just did an interview with Andrea Jane. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's a religious studies professor. Yeah. Yeah, And she wrote a book called selling yoga and 
it sounds, it's basically about how yoga became commercialized. And it's not a negative take on modern yoga at all, although the, the title of the book might suggest that. And she kind of confirmed for me, I think there's just, so, there can be so much debate in the yoga community about like what's real and what's authentic and, and, or, you know, is playing music and authentic or is all of these things. Like we all have our judgments and she just kind of walks really carefully through the history with a lot of research saying it has always morphed and changed. It has, it's not monolithic. Like it's not homogeneous. It's, it has always been contextual is what she says, which is really cool. And then I like went back and read your book again. And I was like, ah, this is perfect. This is exactly what she's talking about. My first trip to India was in 2005. And I, I was married at the time, but my son who was born in 2006 had not yet been conceived. And my studio, my first studio was operating and I was a few years old. I think it was in its fifth year. And I was in a place where I could take a little pause. So I went and spent some time in Southern India and Kerala at an ashram by myself studying Ayurveda. And during my time there, um, I was one of the few women. And I think there were two or three other people from the United States there were more Europeans there. And I didn't know anybody when I went, which was a really gift, big gift to be able just to go and study. And each evening we had satsang with, with the guru of the ashram. And we would sit outside of the temple in meditation. And he would start a kind of discourse, sometimes with a, someone there helping to translate some things. And at the end of it, we could ask questions. And there was a young man who asked, I, he, I think he was from, he was European. I can't remember where he was from. He was maybe he was British. And he had asked the question about what the guru thought about the westernization of yoga. Hmm. And the answer that the guru gave was absolutely not what I expected. He said, I think it's wonderful. And he said, now people can say there's chakra yoga and third eye yoga and heart yoga. And he said, they can say whatever. And it's okay because the evolution of yoga has always been and it always will be. Mm. And if we, and, and I remember thinking, oh, that's such a great bit of permission for someone who is in a very, very serious Kalari Payatu lineage and Chikitsa lineage for him to say that he didn't think it was a bad thing. He, mm -hmm. You know, he, he went on to talk about, it doesn't really matter what hole you dig, but dig it well. You know, it mm -hmm. doesn't matter what spiritual practice you have. Take it seriously and go deep with it and be sincere. And, and what you're seeking, you will find, but that it needs to evolve and it will evolve to support the spirituality and the growth of spirituality as it is. Yeah. I actually wrote uh, an op-ed for USA Today that I will send to you maybe if you want to include it in the show notes. But I talk about this very issue about how we argue a little bit, sometimes a lot of it, <laughs> about, about what yoga is. And if we, if we take yoga at heart, then yoga is steadying the fluctuations of the mind. It is calming the inner crazy. If that means that goats pitter-pattering on your back or drinking beer after yoga calms your mind, well, then that's yoga after your asana practice. If, if it's going to church, Christian, or to temple, or whatever, and that calms the fluctuations of your mind, then that is yoga. You know, we, we get really wrapped up in that it's this asana practice, that what that asana practice has to look like, whether it includes music or goats or beer. And none of that really actually matters if 
all yoga is, is studying the fluctuations of the mind. Mm -hmm. And it's, then there's a lot more breadth for our definition of yoga. And there's an opportunity to be inclusive and engaging and welcoming to new students who, who cares if they're brought in by the new fashion leggings, they're there. Right. Right. For us, you know, somebody, I can't remember if this is one of our other interviews or I think it might've been one of those, one of the magazines interviews we did. The interviewer asked me what I thought yoga, what, what is yoga? Yeah. And I said to her, I think if you would have asked me like 10 or 15 years ago, I would have had a definition that was probably a little bit more narrow in the sense that it was about, you know, studying the mind and creating strength in the body and, and stability in the body and the things that we think of and, and that are yoga. But I don't know if it's because I'm in my 40s now or what it is, but <laughs> I think that yoga is about balance, period. And depending on where we are at any given moment, some tasks, some thoughts, some actions, some space is going to move us into a greater state of balance or further from it. And for each of us, I think that's always in the same way yoga is evolving. It's evolving. Hmm. When I'm I'm 42 and and it looks like this and I'm 31 and I'm 22, what brought me balance is very different and it probably will continue to be that way. Don't you hope so? Oh gosh, I hope so. But, but But without some way in which to understand what balance is, I think we're stuck. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of the work too in the, in the sutras and mm-hmm. living the sutras is that we want you to actually step back for a moment and say, what are you doing? How are you responding? What is your tendency? Is that tendency coming out of a habit? Is it a social tendency? Is it something your mom thought was a truth? And so we we're kind of putting into the hands of the reader, their own ability to take responsibility for the direction they want to move in their life. And I think that's another big message that Kelly yeah. and I are trying to really say, you have the reins. You're you the might, driver. You're the driver. Right. And here are a bunch of ways that you can get back on course. Yeah. I read that USA Today column. It was great. And I think it was in that one that you mentioned. I'm just going to put a quick counterpoint out there because I know you'll speak to this better than I can. I feel like it was in that one that you you talked about how when you first started yoga, it was more exercise. And by uh, Shavasana, you just wanted to roll up your mat and leave. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's like, I think the counterpoint to what you guys are saying, which is, you know, the setting of where you practice doesn't matter whether you use music or not, or whether there are goats around or not, doesn't matter if you are, you know, finding balance for yourself, or for me, it's also like linking the movement to the rest of what's happening in the body, or, you know, stilling this, the the fluctuations of the mind, the opposite is true, too. Like you could be in a yoga studio, in your yoga pants, doing, you know, doing all of the, the things that the teacher tells you to do, but still not really experiencing the practice for yourself. Absolutely. I think, I think that's a hundred percent right. And you know, what I've come to realize, so I started practicing at least consistently for the physical practice. I was running long distance 
races at that point. I had signed up for my first marathon and I knew I needed, you know, to kind of counterbalance that. So I landed on the mat in the hopes of looser hamstrings and I stayed for, for a lot of reasons. And I don't think it took a long time for me to understand what those were. You know, I would go to class and whatever writer's block I'd had was somehow eliminated. Or oh, I just, totally. I love you know, that about yoga. Right? <laughs> yes. I, I would feel a little more grounded and I couldn't identify that. I really couldn't. And I really struggled. I mean, Shavasana is still my hardest pose and that's okay. But now I understand that that, that state is my practice and the asana that I love, the fast flowing, sweaty power asana that I love is part of what I need to make that more accessible to me. For Just for me, I have some sort of internal craziness that makes it much more possible for me to practice meditation and practice stilling the crazy if I've gone for a run or if I've had a sweaty practice. And I think so I think, you know, for a long time, I was practicing asana, but I wasn't practicing yoga. And there are some days where that's still the case. Sure, yeah. Um, fewer, fewer and fewer in between. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what you're describing, where you say you couldn't maybe put a name on it yet, is like the, the technique or the practice made you get closer to who you are. Yes. And so I think when people are, when they've done whatever practice they've done, whether it's been meditation or it's been asana or maybe it's pranayama or it's sitting just with the breath, something that they're doing has brought them closer to who they are. Mm. And when we feel like who we are, we feel good. And the, and the parts of ourselves that are asleep and dormant, they're woken up so the, that your creative juices flow for right. you, Kelly, or for somebody else that might be there. Problem solving. They're problem solving. Right. And uh, whatever, the, whatever, we're, whatever technique we're doing, I mean, if we look at the classical system, Raja yogis, we're looking to transcend themselves through the mind. Right. Hatha yogis are looking to transcend their limitations through the body. Yana yogis are looking to transcend through intellect. And so we could have, maybe we name six or 10 paths, but probably there are 10,000 paths. Mm. And we're, and this principle is we've got, we're continually trying to transcend that part of ourselves that's keeping us in the past or that part of herself that's keeping us not as, as we truly are just stuck in some, stuck way. In some way. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm curious if either of you has a favorite part of the sutras. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have like five top sutras. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. I'm not going to steal Kelly's here. We might, <laughs> I think we probably we have some similar, we, we have some similars and I, I think, 233 is Kelly's probably favorite. Yeah. So I'm going to name that as my second or third. But <laughs> I think, um, know me too well. <laughs> I think one that has been translated so many different ways is the first sutra in book two. And it's the definition of Kriya Yoga. And sometimes Kriya Yoga is just defined as it includes the, the latter three niyamas. Tapas, Varyaya, and Ishwari Pranidhana, which for people who don't know the limbs as well or the yamas and niyamas in Sanskrit, it's discipline essentially or that which refines self-study or some kind of practice of observation and reflection. And then a a nice way, easy way to say it is to kind of have grace and trust and and develop faith. And that's it pretty 
in a in a literal translation. But sometimes Kriya Yoga is, is translated as accepting pain as purification, mm. awareness of that, and the surrender of it as Kriya or as as the ability to change and to elevate. And I remember in one of my first studies, I got to that sutra and I thought, wait a minute. I on this path have to invite pain in as my teacher. And I was, you know, I was in my early 20s and I thought, this does not sound like the system I want. I, I grew up with a pretty, uh, I, went, I grew up in um, went to parochial school and I had a good experience. Uh, my Catholicism was, I think, a good base for me. It, it isn't where I stayed, but there was always a lot of like, I, I felt some repression in my upbringing with that. And I thought, oh God, here we go again. Lots of suffering. Now we're going into, right. maybe I'll just become a Buddhist, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. and I love, and I actually really love to study Buddhism, but all joking aside, I didn't understand what it meant to accept pain or tapas or the process of moving through something as that which purifies. And now I can say, I go to that sutra all of the time because without something difficult, I am going to stay right where I am. And to be able to flip the way we see difficult things or challenges or limitations into seeing them as positive teachers or things that restructure the direction of our life, or just as informants. I know you work in the body a lot. And if there's pain in the body, there's a reason for that pain. If there's pain in the heart, there's a reason for that pain. And to, and to honor that as it is and use it as a teacher to redirect and to be able to reflect and be self-honest and then give up a little bit. So I guess that's one of my favorite sutras that holds me in the understanding of why things aren't always easy, easy. And this, you know, the sutras say that our natural state is a state of ease, but many of us would say, uh, I don't <laughs> think so. So how to reframe that I think is, is a really, really uh, uh, important one for me. Yeah, it is. It's all about like your perception and the layers of meaning. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. So Amy is right. Um, <laughs> cultivating the opposite is probably one of my favorites. It yeah. is definitely my favorite. Because I think that it is so immediately actionable, right? So I so love wait, that before it, before you go into it, Kelly, I I don't have your translation right in front of me, but it's it's Pratipaksha Bhavana, yes, the one you're that's referring exactly to. Right. Okay. It should be uh, Sutra two thirty three. Okay, okay, just so everyone and can, yeah. Before Kelly goes on, here I'll read you our my right yeah translation. Negative thoughts subside by placing attention on positive thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I just, I like that. It feels like a very, like I said, an immediately accessible way to deal with something difficult. So the example I always give is I have a really tough relationship with my mom, actually not as much now, but I did very common mother daughter nonsense, which maybe is an always nonsense. And it, when I, even now, when I find myself starting to get frustrated, I think, God, my mom taught me how to read. She gave me this love of books that I would not have had otherwise. And I am a writer entirely because of my mother, like a hundred percent. Wow. And so whenever she says something and I start to feel that anxiety or my frustration, I think I, all I think is I'm a writer because of my mom. I'm a writer because of my mom. I'm a writer because of my mom. <laughs> I mean, it, it, for me, that really works. And I was doing that in a very subtle way before we did this work. And 
I, you know, it's now I can put, put a word on it, what I was doing. That's one of my favorites. The other series that I love is what Amy and I affectionately called the or list. It is 133 to, let me see, 139. And Patanjali is basically saying, you know, the closest way to yoga is through God, right? Through the divine. And then he says, but for the rest of us, the rest of you, yeah. you can do it through the breath or through meditating on Aum, or through thinking about somebody you admire or through all these different ways. I think there are nine or 10, 12 ways. And why I love that is because it reinforces to me that yoga sh- is, should be non-dogmatic and accessible. Mm -hmm. And so what works for me is not going to work for you. What works for me today is going to be super different, I hope, than what works for me in five years or 10 years, because we change and we grow, hopefully. And I just really love how I know that feels very inclusive and welcoming to me. And, and like, I can grow within this practice. And I love that. Yeah. And it shows, you know, that there are different tools you use for different people, which right. is just like it, it, like you said, it's, it makes it more open, non-dogmatic. And also that there are just so many different ways that just to serve your own constitution and your own mental state and your own state of health and your own physical body. Like there's just so many different, different tools that you can use. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's, you probably know, we talk a lot about the definition of spiritual practice of sadhana yoga. And Sutra 12 in book one basically gives us these two opposite sides of the coin to define practice, abhyasa and viragya, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And this was one that we spent quite a bit of time on because if you looked up in my 20 copies of the sutras, most translators will agree that abhyasa means effort. Mm-hmm. And that viragya is given a couple different words, often dispassion, mm-hmm. or indifference, and that indifference and dispassion coupled with effort uh, um, denote spiritual discipline. And I think indifference or detachment is a very, very difficult thing for us in the, the sort of acquiring world where if Kelly went to Harvard and on the last day of school at Harvard, I, as your professor said, it's been really great to have you. Thank you for your hundreds of thousands of dollars, but there is no graduating certificate for you. (laughs) (laughs) You might say, what do you mean? And I say, well, dispassion, be not attached. You have the experience, now you're done. And most of us would say, wait a minute, I just put a lot into that. I expect there to be this certain result. Mm -hmm. And here in Sutra 12, in book one, early on, right after we're just given a definition of what the mind stuff is and how the mind is in a fluctuating state, then Patanjali says, and by the way, the definition of spiritual practice is to put forth your effort and be without concern. And it's like, oh, can, can we do that? So we wanted to come up with a word that wasn't so off putting as dispassion mm-hmm. or as confusing as dispassion. Yeah, like how, confusing how, as... how can I be without passion and put in my effort? And so around and around we went and I don't know which one of us said it, but acceptance was the winner because if we can put effort into something and then accept it, we can probably put more effort in and accept. And for me, it's this continual, I have a focus, I'm going to put energy into it and then I'm going to 
I'm going to release and accept what it is. And so we say that the mind, the fluctuations of the mind can be stilled through the combination of practice and acceptance. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that was a big one for me because I think that sutra we talk about, but I don't know that we all know how to do, I don't know how I know how to be like indifferent. Mm -hmm. I'm not a very different person. I have to work very hard or to be neutral is even a better word for me than indifferent. But Mm -hmm. I don't, think that yoga is asking anybody to be indifferent. I think I don't have, either. I, don't I think, think we have a, a obligation to better the world and serve the world. And when we see injustice happening there, that that is, and I think that's the problem with the word dispassion, right? So, oh wait, I see this harmful thing happening and I'm just supposed to be dispassionate and detached from it. I don't, I don't think that's right. So I, I that's, that was one of the many reasons We've talked a lot about the the very specific word we use there, but in a, in a lot of the sutras, we would go back and forth. Like, is that the right is that the right word? Does that really mean what what it what we what think, it, think should it should mean? Yeah, you know, and just a few sutras later, how we're going to get into this place where we we talk about that same idea again is to accept the changing nature of life, and right. that that's key for me. Sutra sixteen is talking just before he's going to say, here's what the samadhi is, which is another big word, right? The state of enlightenment or ecstasy or bliss can be achieved after this. Well, that's a kind of concept that is so far out for most of us that wouldn't living in an easy way, in a joyful way. I mean, that would trump the idea for me of Uh being in an ecstatic place removed or detached from my, from my life at this point anyway. So for us, we, we say supreme acceptance leads to understanding our true self and occurs when we allow for the changing nature of life. And that to me is if I could underline it, I'd say underline, allow for the changing nature of life. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Because that's inevitable. That's what we can't control. We cannot, we cannot. And you know, to me, that's what, that is like the whole thing that continues to drive my practice is like, how can I accept the fluctuations of life? And it's funny, like as a parent, I noticed this, comes up so much with kids, with parenting, with helping them to understand. And it's like you said that when you were talking about Kriya, the Kriyas and the concept of pain, it's like, you don't want to necessarily teach them like, well, life is really hard and you just got to suck it up. But there is, (laughs) right? But like, there is this level of certain things for them can be so difficult, right? That we have at this point in our living have accepted and we can just kind of move through them a little bit more effortlessly and we have to teach them that yeah it's it's good I I I like that I've never seen the translation of Vairagya as acceptance and I'm I'm turning it over and over in my mind I I like it a lot yeah welcome to use it (laughs) I will I will you know speaking of kids you know I, I I think that too and I and the opposite you know my son doesn't want to do his chores, but he has chores. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want him to be in a place where, yeah, there's things that we don't all want to do. We can't just play on an iPad all day. Yeah. You know, we, there are things that we that are going to develop us. And I think that's one thing that in our house we, we talk about a lot. Like, well, this is so we're preparing you. Yeah. You know? And I think it's a type of practice. We're doing the same thing on the mat. This is preparing me so that I I can flow with that which goes up and that which goes down and that which goes up in an easier way. So one little anecdote came to mind for me when you were talking about the the dispassion, non-attachment concept. And I think that that out of all things in yoga, teaching and learning over the years, 
for me, the thing I see all of us struggle the most with, the two concepts are non-attachment and an ego is another another concept that I think is really, really hard for Westerners to grapple with. Like, what are we talking? Anyway, I did, yeah. a, I did a podcast with Sally Kempton about that one, but I've also done a lot of Buddhist study. And one of my favorite little visuals of non-attachment is from Jack Cornfield. I think it's in A Path with Heart. And he talks about, he he kind of frames it more as like, witness consciousness and so he he talks about you know it's like a child who can spend all day making a sandcastle and then they watch and they really enjoy the sandcastle and then the waves come and sweep over the sandcastle and they still enjoy that too Mm-hmm. you know like they don't and he's like they says something like they don't stomp their feet and they just kind of walk away it's and it's like you said it's like the acceptance of the coming and going of life that's just what happens that's yeah. a great that's image a it's a great image yeah i always like that you know one. think of the beautiful buddhist mandalas you know the time that's spent in making these beautiful sand mandalas you know for days and days and then they're swept away mm-hmm. yeah and i know it's amazing right it is an amazing practice well i had let's see i highlighted this one section that i love your translation your interpretations of which uh or sutras 119 and 120 so samadhi is a natural state for someone who is enlightened and then 120 for the rest of us we must yeah. use <laughs> faith passion mindfulness quiet and good judgment to support our journey towards Samadhi. I I love lists. So uh, I, and I, of course, knew those elements, but I don't think I I had committed those to memory yet. So I will commit that one to memory. Sutra 20 and 30 in book one, there's another list for you. 30 are the obstacles. There are these nine obstacles. And I think those are, are, these two are good to go back and forth between because they, these obstacles can change. You know, some, at, like, if I looked at this list, I could easily say, nah, nah, nah. Like, I could say, I'm not ill. I don't really procrastinate. I, I work harder than everybody I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm confident. I'm not careless. I mean, I know careless people, but I'm not careless. I'm not lazy. I work 14 hours a day, 15. I don't want, you know, and we could, we could say to ourselves, no. But we have, every single one of us can find an area that well, one or two of those will pop out and it's like, actually, that's what's going on for me right now. I, I don't have the stability. I am being a little apathetic or whatever it might be to say, like, I'm going to use that as my for this whole week. I'm going to pay attention to the moments when I'm longing or for this whole week. I'm going to watch myself and notice what I become apathetic about and how how are those things? How if I can catch that? Mm. How do I know that that's they're causing pain that I can't even see? So I like that list, too, to kind of go back and forth between. What, what does it mean if you look at the list and you think you, you have all of those problems? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that means you're a very normal person. <laughs> and that's the first starting place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that list. And I also love the specific clashes because it, it makes you feel not so alone in all of your right. it like totally obvious constant flaws you know it's like okay well this has been around for a while this has been talked about and thought about for a while and there are ways to ways to cope with it so I was having a conversation with a a regular student of mine this week last week and she was like you don't seem very judgmental and I said I'm so judgmental you know I have an ego my my mind is I don't always listen to it but I can observe my judgment all day long I can be in the car and I think 
that person bought a dumb car or I can, you know, like, and then I think like, who am I to say that person bought a dumb, what's a dumb car, you know, like, or whatever the mind does, you know, and it's, it's because the ego itself is attempting to understand reality and it can only understand reality by some kind of in relation to something else. Mm. And so I think if we can start paying attention to how we relate, like this is better, this is worse, this is right, this is wrong then we begin to understand the trap of the ego. Right, 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 right. Yep. Yep. I see that. But if that. we're in the human body, we're probably pretty judgmental beings. Mm-hmm, yeah. you know? mm-hmm. and, and it's learning the difference between discernment and judgment. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Can you, can you, t- what does that mean for you? For me, it is, if I oversimplified it, it would be being able to observe, to notice when I am have caught in a subjective reality versus an objective reality. So objectively, okay, I'm in, I'm in Kelly's office. Subjectively, her office is freaking cold. <laughs> I have on, Kelly, what am I wearing? It's, it's, she's wearing, it's, it's, it's um, 86 degrees outside right now. She's wearing a sweatshirt and I have three yeah, layers yeah. on in her office and Kelly is wearing a short sleeve shirt, but I have learned after a year and a half that I run warmer than she does. So I come with layers. So this office might be 68 degrees objectively. It's neither good nor bad. But for me, it's bad, right? Quote, unquote, bad, right? Mm-hmm. And for Kelly, if we were to sit out on her deck and have this interview, it would be bad. She'd be dying. She'd be dying. <laughs> and for me, it would be good. You know, so that, I mean, really simply, I can just say like, is this bad? No, it just is. And I think when we can, we can start to understand the difference between what is and what we think it should be mm-hmm. and how we relate to that, it being good or bad, is the beginning of understanding the difference between this higher mind and the lower mind. Mm-hmm. Or intellect and ego and discernment and judgment. In discernment and judgment. Right. Yeah. This time has flown by. I want to just ask one more question, which is, can you talk about what you did with in the, in the book, the structure of the book with the, the last, with the Vibhuti Pada? And why we stopped there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want I would just love to hear you talk about it in the book, but I would just love to hear your, your description. I think from a, Fundamental standpoint, the main reason we decided to stop at the end of the first three sutras in Vibhutipada is just because we end the eight limbs there. And this book is, is meant to be about the portion on practice and, and application. Mm-hmm. And uh, for, for those who are listening that don't know, the, the rest of the sutras, which is there's about another third of the sutras left between um, the third and the fourth book. They're the shorter of the two, but there's less sutras. They are about the further stages of powers that we gain. In the fourth book, the stages of absorption, how the mind moves into a state that is eventually free from any kind of conditioning or any kind of memory. And number one, because Kelly and I haven't moved into a state that is beyond <laughs> memory or... <laughs> We're not there yet. We're not there yet. I, you know, there, I, I think we didn't need to translate that because that, that exists in almost every other translation. Yep. Um, so that, that kind of was a, ch- a, a writing choice, a style choice. But also, I think we wanted it to be an open-ended journey where at the end of, when we get to the first three sutras of, uh, of the Bhutipada, we're understanding that we have come to a culmination of what it, what it means to fall into a state of transcendence. transcendence, where we're not doing it with effort. We arrive at something. And that there are these layers that we can, you know, what I arrived at a year ago, is now maybe on some level known and now there's something else to arrive at. And that by ending there, there's a process of peeling the onion. Yeah. Peeling an onion and we can, we can keep going. 
I mean, I, that was our main choice that it was, here's the end of the active part of right. Ashtanga yoga. I mean, the rest of the rest of it really is the results of this practice. Mm-hmm. And since we have not arrived at those results, and since, as Amy said, the work is leading up to that, it didn't feel necessary. And I think the other piece of it is, it's easy to dismiss some of those results as far-fetched would mm-hmm. be metaphorical yeah, metaphorical and so we just didn't want to get into that partly because hey maybe when you are that enlightened you can float or see everything and you know have omniscient knowledge and hearing mm-hmm. so we're you know we didn't want to dismiss that not having experienced it mm-hmm. that's our next book it's called beyond the sutras <laughs> <laughs> well i am I think it was a really wise choice and and I knew that you were going to have an in-depth, you know, answer for that and I feel like it just makes the work that you've done that much more like authentic and applicable and and the, those last parts uh, have always just really made me struggle with the previous parts of the sutras. So right. in a way like by removing that and saying like okay, we're we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't mean that the the parts leading up, just because you can't, like I can't apply the last parts to my own life, doesn't mean that the parts leading up to it are any less valid. So I, I just, I really appreciate that choice. I like it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. And if there's anything I missed, let me know. Thank you so much for oh, having us. Thanks this so much for wonderful. having us. Yeah, it was great. And I will obviously put links to for people to buy the book on the show notes page. So thank you. Fantastic. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'll put show notes with a link to Amy and Kelly's book on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 122. If you would like to share your favorite yoga sutra and your application of that sutra in your everyday life, I'd love to see it. And that makes me think I should put a few of mine on the internet as well. You can post it on Instagram with the hashtag Yogaland Stories, and I will look for it and share some in my feed. Okay, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.